Hello and welcome. I am Dr. Lara May, a clinical pharmacist specializing in functional medicine, as well as a certified yoga teacher and Reiki master. I run a truly integrative health coaching practice, encompassing functional medicine lab testing, yoga and meditation, and a sprinkling of Reiki energy medicine. Join me here on Light Body Radio to break through your health plateau and come into alignment with your natural vitality. Welcome to another episode of Light Body Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lara May, and today I have with me David Krantz. And David is a certified epigenetic coach and sought-after expert in the field of individualized genetic-based nutrition and peak performance. As a lifelong musician, David sees the various systems of the body parts as a complex symphony. And as a coach, he excels at helping clients fine-tune those parts to create resonant, harmonious health and harness their creative personal power. An expert in the pharmacogenetic of the genetics of the endocannabinoid system, David is best known for developing a proprietary genetic test that helps people understand their unique and individual response to cannabinoids. He was nominated in 2019 as a top 100 health innovator by the International Forum for Healthcare Advancement. A biohacker by training and artist by nature, David enjoys working with others who have a deep passion for getting the most out of life. Welcome, David. How are you today? I'm doing great, Lara. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to delve into this. So let's just start with the basics. What is epigenetics? Sure. So epigenetics, when you break it apart and really look at what the roots of the word mean, it means above the genes or control over the genes. And this describes how your genes change their expression over time in response to things in the environment. And when I say environment, I mean that word very loosely. I mean everything that you're experiencing, anything you're putting in your body, any emotions that are creating the internal landscape of your biochemistry. All of these things impact your genetic expression, which really, when you boil it down, either creates or detracts from health. Right. And so just to clarify, because I think a lot of us were raised with this idea that your genes are your destiny. And so let's say you have a family history of diabetes or heart disease or even certain types of cancer that you might necessarily be destined to inevitably develop whatever that health condition is. So epigenetically speaking, we would say not necessarily, right? Exactly. And I think that so much of why epigenetics is exciting is related to the mindset and a relationship to what we perceive our bodies as and, and what we perceive our bodies as capable of. Because yeah, when I went through high school biology, I was taught the central dogma of biology, which is genes code for proteins and code and those code for traits. Right. And it was hardwired, your destiny is fixed, and that that. Um, but really, there's been a revolution in that understanding in the past 20, 30 years or so, really just in the past 10, 15 years, as research really clamped down on this and said, oh, yeah, this is super, super important. And we're kind of overriding what we initially thought um, to give us this understanding that a lot of what we thought was fixed is actually malleable and dependent more on what we do rather than what genes we have. 
Yes, I personally find that so empowering and I really try to bring that to my patients as well. And I'm sure it sounds like that that's also what you do is I feel like I'm sure we're both in the same boat that a large part of our job or calling is education and empowerment and saying, hey, you might have been taught this, you know, 10, 20 years ago, but now it's different and you do have the power and you do have control and you don't have to sort of resign yourself to the quote, this is just how it is mentality. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it, totally. Ex- exactly. Yeah, very similar. And, and that's a lot of what I'm doing with my clients is, is helping them understand that and really look at, um, you know, what are the things that you want to be different? And what are the epigenetic changes that can help you get there? And then really kind of parse that out through lifestyle change through nutrition, all, all those different factors. Um, and I think it's so cool just to kind of consider that you know, we know that mindset and belief can impact epigenetic expression. And it's kind of this interesting meta thing to think that changing our mindset about our genes, changing our mindset about our epigenetics might itself actually open the door to positive epigenetic changes. It's kind of this. I just think that's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. right. I love that. Um, So cool. So you just mentioned what we can change and how we can change it. So I want to get specific about that. Maybe it's kind of still a broad question, but what can we change specifically through epigenetics from your perspective? So I, yeah. So my perspective on it is that um, pretty much anything that you could tie a blood marker to, right? Like anything that you could go get a blood test and say, my cholesterol has changed from this to that, or these inflammation levels in the body have changed from this to that. Um, My HbA1c or blood glucose has changed from this to that. All of those top level markers, right? Think of this as kind of the tip of the iceberg. All of those things have these cellular components beneath them that are epigenetic in nature. So, you know, when you're looking at, say, changes in biomarkers or changes in your mood, you know, say like going from a depressed state to a non-depressed state, all of those things have an epigenetic component to it. And really looking at it from that perspective kind of gives us another layer of uh, intervention of tools that we can we can leverage and say, all right, well, let's not just look at what changes this biomarker. Let's look at what changes the underlying epigenetic machinery of what genes cause that biomarker to change too. Because sometimes there's um, a broader array of options uh, that can contribute to positive changes in mood or uh, energy or things like that than you were aware of before when you start looking at what are all the things that influence these underlying bottom layers? Um, so, you know, uh, we, we can get specific on, on like what genes, you know, are known to do what, mm-hmm. um, but definitely in terms of really thinking about health as this broad concept made up of all these, you know, little component parts, all of those little component parts have further component parts that are epigenetic in nature. Right. Yeah. So just to give um, maybe some more specific context, like you brought up blood glucose management. So definitely diabetes and um, any sort of autoimmune dysfunction, whether it's thyroiditis or Hashimoto's Mm -hmm. or even something more complicated like RA or lupus. I think it's, you know, we've been 
again, this goes back to the old dogmatic view and Western medicine, you know, you have a symptom, we'll treat it with this drug. And yes, they might do some genetic testing, but they don't really go the step farther to say, okay, well, how do we get to the root of that to sort of, um, to come to a solution to start healing it? It's still just symptomatic treatment. And so, so this epigenetic perspective not only takes it a step further from the functional medicine side, which is what I do is, okay, so we're going to use food and supplements and nutraceuticals to really help support your system to start healing that root cause of inflammation. But now we're looking at what does your gene map say? Like what is your specific blueprint, so to speak? What's going on in your environment emotionally, physically, spiritually, uh, you know, in so many different ways, it's also augmenting that. And so it's just from what kind of like, if you're first being exposed to this, it can be kind of mind blowing. You're like, whoa, <laughs> this is a lot bigger than I was ever, or, you know, exposed to or could even think about. So from one perspective, exciting, and maybe from another perspective, a little overwhelming. So that brings me to like, how do you have a systematic way that you approach this with your clients and patients? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I just want to touch on what you're saying there. It can feel overwhelming, but it can all it's it's kind of like you can make it as simple or as complex as you want. Okay. Um, because a lot of the the like, you know, quote unquote action items that come from understanding epigenetics are fairly simple. Um, you know, it it's stuff that looks pretty similar to a functional medicine approach. Um, looks at diet, looks at emotional state, looks at that mind-body interaction, uh, looks at um, herbs and supplements and, and exercise and all those things. And you can stay on that surface layer and, you know, not understand the epigenetics at all, but just understanding that, you know, say meditation changes, you know, two or 3,000 different genes with regular, you know, Practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ju just knowing that you don't need to know what those genes are, but just understanding that as a as a perspective uh, gives you an ability to um, really kind of target um, this this underlying system in a broad way. And then you can get really geeky about it and say, I want to, you know, I want to focus on this particular set of genes and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but also to all what you were saying too about. Um, you know, it, how similar it is to the functional approach. It, it, it just complements any other approach, right? It, it kind of gives another way to describe what's going on in functional medicine, uh, in energy healing, in acupuncture. Like there's some amazing studies looking at epigenetic changes from acupuncture and mm -hmm. it blows the lid off of the Western idea that we can't really figure out what this is doing. So it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it actually gives a mechanism to say, all right, well, um, you know, you might have the meridian system or the five element system from a Chinese perspective, but from an epigenetic perspective, we can actually pinpoint what's happening and provide a mechanism for, for this. Um, so, you know, it, it's very complementary. Mm -hmm. And it's also complementary to, to medication and pharmaceuticals in, in an interesting way too, um, because 
you know, for example, we we're talking about depression, like antidepressant drugs. Um, what they know now is there's a lot of epigenetic changes that happen <laughs> from being on, uh, you know, yeah. antidepressants. Some are some are going to cause side effects, and some are going to get some of the things you want. Um, but again, it kind of broadens the perspective to say, well, all right, well, what are the other things that can impact? Um, histones, which are a specific type of um, epigenetic uh, component, what are these other things that change histone deacetylation in serotonin, right? And then we look yeah. at exercise and we look at all these other things and it connects medication to this broader integrative approach. And I, I kind of like to look at epigenetics as um, sort of the hub of, or like the, uh, the hubcap on a wheel that has mm -hmm. all these spokes to it where it just kind of connects all of these different practices together in a way where we say, oh, look, all of these different things are impacting the system, kind of levels the playing field between them so we don't have to be so dogmatic by saying just nutrition, just pharmaceuticals, just this one thing. It's more set to draw from and say, hey, here's, um, you know, here's some things that could be useful. Um, Sorry, yeah. I kind of digressed there. No, but, that's okay. <laughs> I love that you brought in, you know, the antidepressants because if you, from from my Western medicine uh, clinical background and experience, if you look at those drug studies, mm -hmm. most of the benefit actually came from a positive placebo effect, not from the drug itself. Mm -hmm. But the unfortunate thing is once we get a patient on them, it can be so hard to taper them off because the side effects the side effects actually have more of an impact on the patient than the actual positive uh, drug effect in right. most and, patients. And, <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and the other thing that I found interesting is that um, a lot of the, the SSRIs um, impact inflammation in this specific way where it seems like there's less effect from anything related to neurotransmitters directly and more just a broad effect on decreasing inflammation, which you could achieve in you know, a lot of other ways. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a whole new world in terms of really seeing how all these pieces fit together, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like you said earlier, just having the knowledge and the awareness, which is so much of what, you know, epigenetics, but also energy medicine, you know, we always say where your intention and your attention goes, the energy flows. So may, and hopefully maybe we can even ideally spread that to more Western medicine practitioners instead of saying, well, we don't understand this. So we're just going to say, you know, there's no hope or nothing to do about it. No, just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that there aren't so many other things that we can bring attention to and that we can um, awaken and um, heal and decrease inflammation, you know, so many different aspects with just the attention and awareness and intention to uh, better it or improve it, you know? Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it, it um, I hate to even use this word, but it legitimizes practices that Western medicine has kind of rejected because oh, they haven't yeah. been able to understand it. Right. So it, it gives a, a, a language to something that has been hard to articulate. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and even more, like you said, we are doing more scientific research. There are entire academic programs dedicated now to epigenetics, which 
you know, Bruce Lipton started a long time ago, but it has grown so much. And so, yes, um, legitimizing it more and more. So with that being said, what is uh, some of the testing that you do to yeah. sort of bring, um, bring a, I don't know, a validity to this awareness? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the testing that I do is more genetic than epigenetic in nature. And I'll, I'll tell you why is just because the true epigenetic tests that measure methylation and acetylation marks on the genes, which are different tags that the body puts on your, your genome to change the expression, um, there, most of those kind of tests are still relegated to university labs, and there's not a lot of commercially available testing. There's a little bit, uh, but mostly what I do is looking at the base genome, and this is um, the part of your genome that actually doesn't change. Um, This is the the kind of base layer that gets these uh, epigenetic tags put on it and and you see that change in expression. But what I do with my clients is I use genetic testing to get an understanding of what the underlying terrain looks like in the body and how these different genetic variants and these specific uh, amino acid differences in the genetic code, right? We're talking about this pattern of, of molecules that makes you you and kind of provides this basic struct instruction manual um, looks at how that is going to be responsive to different epigenetic influences from the environment. Because one person can have, say, variant A, another person can have variant B, and the epigenetic response to, say, a food like you know, saturated fat or monounsaturated fat or um, carbohydrates, um, you know, might be very different from person Mm -hmm. to person depending on what these variants are. So I'm looking more at what the code says. And instead of looking at it as a blueprint for destiny, I'm looking at it more as an instruction manual for running your body at optimal. Right. Like how can we augment what's happening And so I want to get specific, maybe let's have an example of, um, I think probably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, MTHFR is probably one of the most well-known SNPs that we can sort of augment and how it functions. Would you agree? Uh, Yeah, I would say so. I would say it's one of the most well-known. I would say it's actually one of the trickier ones to look at just genetics alone uh, and get an understanding of what's going on because it's embedded in the system that has many other genes that influence the same cycle, the methylation cycle in the body. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those ones where it's very helpful to pair with lab testing, blood testing, uh, and get the actually more of the epigenetic uh, change because sometimes people will have MTHFR variants that aren't or are expressed. And so um, understanding what the genes are gives you a really good idea of what you want to be looking for in lab work. And so I always say that um, genes are the why and lab work is the what. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the what's going on. And then you have, you can pair that with genetics to really say, all right, well, why is this showing up this way? And what are the things that we can do differently and be more personalized and specific to change that? So um, yes, MTHFR, really important. And to give your listeners a, um, ha- have you talked about MTHFR on the show? Should I, should we? Yes. Yeah. It? Yes. 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 Go for it. 
Okay, cool. So um, <laughs> MTHFR is this gene uh, that codes for an enzyme called methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase, really big word. Yes. And um, it's very important in something called the methylation cycle in the body. Methylation reactions happen millions of times per second in the body. It's a very basic process. Think about it as kind of a building block of many different enzymes, many different detoxification processes. It's kind of like just raw material that gets used up for chemical reactions in the body. And so we need uh, abundance of these molecules available to create neurotransmitters, to detox heavy metals, to uh, break down hormones, do all of the things that you know functional biochemistry does. And we make um, these methyl groups out of B12 and a couple other B vitamins and folate. And, uh, you know, we get folate from green vegetables. We get B12 mostly from animal products. Um, you know, you, from supplements, of course, too. Um, but people with certain variants in the MTHFR gene have a significantly reduced enzyme function. Um, there's two main MTHFR variants. One's called the 677 and the other one's called the, the 1298. And say you are you have the less functional version in both of those, you're going to have an MTHFR enzyme that's likely to be about 60 to 80 percent less effective at making those methyl groups than someone with the more functional version. And there's many different uh, diseases that are tied to this, uh, cancer, diabetes, autoimmune things, a pretty broad array of possibilities. But here's the really interesting thing to me about MTHFR that a lot of people don't know. And so if you're listening and going, you know, I'm familiar with MTHFR, this is, I think, the really critical piece is... It's less about whether or not you have the mutant or wild type version. It's less about whether it's functional or non-functional. It's really about whether you're more or less sensitive to environmental influences because the quote unquote less functional enzyme, even though it's, um, you have a higher risk of certain types of cancer uh, when you don't get enough folate, don't have enough raw fuel to power the methylation cycle. In situations where people have an abundance of folate and they get enough of it, it's actually cancer protective compared to the quote unquote more functional variant. So you just see a, a wider swing uh, oftentimes between um, you know having a risk if you're not getting the right nutrition versus actually having an advantage if you are getting the right nutrition. Mm -hmm. So and this shows up so many places with genetics where there's, there's almost never a truly detrimental variant. There's mm -hmm. really mostly just genes that make you more sensitive to certain influences. And if you get it wrong, well, the consequences are greater. But if you get it right, you actually can get some advantages and benefits from it. Yeah, so it's so all about... That's kind of my... Yeah, finding the sweet spot, so to speak. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so you, when you mentioned um, the environmental influences, what would you um, give as a, like specific examples of these environmental influences that maybe affect this MTHFR variant? 
Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is going to be dietary intake. Okay. Uh, a lot of it is going to be uh, folate and B vitamins and uh, choline as well to a degree because the choline cycle also feeds into the methylation cycle. Um, so someone that has a less functional um, MTHFR enzyme generally wants to have more folate in their diet. Um, and you can check certain blood markers like homocysteine that can give you an indication of how well you're, um, you're feeding that methylation. So like, mm-hmm. I'll use myself an example. I'm a, I'm a heterozygous um, carrier of both the 677 and 1298, which means I have a little bit of reduction in both of those important variants. And so my MTHFR variants um, are, you know, need some support. Yeah. Uh, And I first tested my homocysteine, which is kind of a marker of methylation status, blood marker, kind of the epigenetic response. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was pretty high. I think it's when I first checked it, it was like 12 or 13, which mm, um, is, is yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty healthy. It's like, yeah. um, I would never have known to check that if I didn't know my MTHFR. So a lot of what genes, knowing your genes do is they point you to the direction to say, well, we should probably pay attention to this. Um, and then I started supplementing uh, methylfolate and B12 more regularly, and I got it down to, you know, eight or nine, um, which is you know, pretty close to the optimal range. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so that's kind of the example of using your genes to isolate what you want to test for. You choosing a intervention that is going to um, cause epigenetic changes uh, and also, um, you know, retest and see how the epigenetic response goes. Yeah. And one, one other thing to this is that and, and the reason why, one of the reasons why methylation is so important is it is a mediator of epigenetic change. These are, these methyl groups get put on to the DNA and tell gene expression to get turned down. And so you want certain genes turned down. And if you don't have enough methyl groups, um, you'll be undermethylated and not be able to control epigenetic expression in a way that really allows you to respond optimally to the environment. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I love that you said methylfolate because that's really important, I think, because we do hear from the Western medicine side, we hear a lot about folic acid and, you know, make sure you have enough folic acid. Um, but again, if you do have some of these MTHFR SNPs, whether you're homo or heterozygous, um, you definitely need to be cognizant of what kind of folate you're ingesting because you can actually have some negative side effects to folic acid itself that you would find at like your normal, like Walgreens, CVS, Walmart type of vitamin source. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so making sure you're getting the methylated B vitamins, and that includes B12 too. Absolutely, and then, and, yeah. and there and just to jump in there too, there, yeah. there's a there's another um, couple there's a gene called DHFR, uh, dihydrofolate reductase, that sits in that same pathway. And that enzyme is what will take folic acid and turn it into the usable form of folate that we get from food and and we turn methylfolate into. And the reason why, and, and there's different variants that some people have that make it harder to use folic acid. But what's so <laughs> um, kind of crazy to me 
is that when we were, when scientists were first doing studies on folic acid, I think you know in the seventies, and, and saying, all right, what you know, how how can we make broad recommendations for people? They were doing these studies on rats, and it turns out that rats actually have a DHFR enzyme that's about three hundred times more efficient than humans. Oh, wow. So rats don't have that issue. Yeah. humans have that issue and yeah. I, I really yeah i really appreciate bringing that up because i think that's a huge factor in really getting the usable forms of, of vitamins in our body to to you know genetic weaknesses or um really optimize the system in that way right well and i think that also points out how much our um research and our scientific environment has changed over the, the the decades now between now and the 70s and even before that is that now you would never not never but very rarely do you use a rat study to apply to humans in practice right off the bat you use rat studies initially to get an idea and then you do your human studies and then things come to market um, so but and the fact that a lot of our guidelines haven't been changed or updated since then either. So, and with those nutritional recommendations, they are based on the lowest common denominator, meaning you need this minimum amount so you don't start to have um, t like the side effects or the disease states that manifest because you are so under fueled with these different nutrients. And so I think that's important to keep in mind too is that when consumers look at these recommendations, through the FDA or the different, um, you know, um, groups out there like the ADA, like the American Diabetes Association, or whatever it is. It's like these numbers are coming from a, a time and a place that wasn't the best in terms of the quality of research. And so we need to really, I think, open our minds to changing our perspective and taking into account some of these things that are better researched now with just a different perspective like epigenetic and and looking at our, at our genomic map. Yeah, absolutely. I think you really hit it on the head there and, and very much on the same page about nutritional uh, baseline requirements being often very different from optimal intake yes, for people. Yes. Baseline and, versus optimal for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is where the, the gene, you know, using genes get, gets really helpful to really identify in certain people where you're going to have a naturally higher uh, tendency to need more of a certain nutrient, or in some cases, actually less. Uh, like for example, there's some people, um, more people than you might expect that, um, can be prone to inflammation from high vitamin E intake. Uh, right. And so, you know, if you're someone who's putting a ton of vitamin E oil on your skin or taking it in a supplement, it's something you probably want to be aware of that, um, you know, you might actually be getting a negative response from something that's generally purported to be healthy. And I think that's... Uh, um, I love genetics is because it kind of takes the guesswork out of that. And you just don't have to wonder. Um, it just creates a little bit more concrete understanding of what your predispositions and tendencies are. And then it just gives you this, um, like I said before, kind of a roadmap to follow to say, hey, here's, here's the instruction manual. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so much about medicine that is guesswork. And especially going back to any sort of mental health, a lot of that is, oh, these are your symptoms. This is the drug that we're going to give you. 
we don't know if it's going to work for you. And if it doesn't, we'll try something else. So, so much of it is trial and error. And there, there is a little bit of guideline approach, but, but not really. And so I love the, using in my practice, and I'm sure you as well, using the map of, you know, the DNA blueprint, and then these labs that we can check that really do give us an idea of, okay, are, what, are we doing something good for this patient? Do we need to do something different? Um, you know, so yes, using precision medicine and really embracing it for, I think, the present and the future of really optimizing patient health. Absolutely. And, and, and really looking at um, from my perspective, uh, precision wellness and looking at this in a wellness model where, you know, just because you're not sick and you don't qualify, you know, you go to a kind of standard Western doctor and they're like, eh, you seem fine. Um, just because, you know, that's your state doesn't mean there's other levels that you can reach beyond that. So I really love working with people that have that mentality to say, all right, well, I'm pretty good, but how can I really optimize my system, optimize the outcomes to prep my brain and body to function in a way that really, really maximizes what I'm here to do. And, you know, the, what what you said about mental health, uh, I'm super passionate about that because, you know, the, the notion that depression or anxiety is this mono, are these monolithic things that, you know, just have this neurotransmitter imbalance is so off base. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, you know, many different biophenotypes of those conditions and really addressing things on an individual basis uh, and looking at genes, looking at labs, looking at emotions and experience and things from a therapy standpoint Mm -hmm. is really, you know, the most important thing. And on, on that note, um, I mean, therapy itself, the, the act of sitting and developing a relationship with someone and, and, and being vulnerable and honest and, and expressing your emotions uh, has been shown to create epigenetic changes as well. And there, it, it's a fairly new area. There's only, I believe there's six studies in total right now that have really looked at epigenetic changes pre and post therapy. But what they found is that in, um, I believe it's PTSD, um, OCD, and um, I want to say one of the personality disorders, I think it's borderline, um, successful treatments have, have been associated with specific epigenetic changes. So when people actually make the changes and start to feel a different way um, from talk therapy, from somatic therapy, from working with the the mind and the body, Mm -hmm. there are measurable specific changes that are, you know, in the same system that nutrition affects and exercise affects and meditation affects. And again, it kind of, um, I think, demystifies some of the process of what it means to heal and what it means to transform and change on an internal level, on a, on a mental and emotional level, and gives us an opportunity to kind of stack things together and say, all right, well, if we know that um, you know, this type of therapy changes uh, these genes related to these neurotransmitters, and we know this food does too, and we know that this type of exercise does some similar things, and so does this and that, and uh, you know, maybe jumping in an ice bath does some similar things, like you <laughs> yeah. know, throw it in there. Yeah. Um, 
why why don't we you know start to stack protocols that absolutely. all are going to influence the same kind of system yeah absolutely i can definitely attest to that personally i um i started seeing an emdr therapist right around christmas and um, I usually use myself as an N is one when I do some of this testing and as well. And so I can definitely attest to, like you said, like the approach to other lifestyle things. So yes, I'm going and I'm sitting with this person and we're going through the EMDR process, which is very specific process in the therapy realm. But, and then after that, I feel so much better and so much more ready to handle other things that come at me throughout my day and even with work, personal life, exercise, so many things. So yeah, I like that. Um, protocol stacking for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Proto protocol stacking and also understanding like how this stuff gets programmed early in life and also transgenerationally um, because one of, again, I'm, I keep saying one of the most interesting things. I think it's all interesting, <laughs> um, but it is the um, the epigenetic changes in neurodevelopment starting from a really young age and healthy attachment with your parents and adult caregivers. Um, like if any of your listeners are familiar with the concept of attachment styles, um, you know, being able to, um, engage with people and not feel anxious when they leave or kind of have this healthy boundaries. All of those things are programmed early in life. And they also have really distinct epigenetic signatures that influence a number of other health factors that uh, influence things like diabetes, cardiac disease, attachment styles, and these psychological ways of being with other people actually influence what some people might think of as more hard um, health factors. Um, and again, it's kind of the epigenetics that, that mediate that, that kind of act as that hub or, or um, hubcap in, in the wheel that kind of connects those. And so, you know, sitting with a therapist, doing EMDR, reprocessing and, and reconsolidating memories gives us an opportunity to change some of those attachment patterns or change some trauma patterns in the way we think about things. And um, yeah, exactly. Really changes the way you feel. And I've actually had some really positive experiences with EMDR too. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Okay. Where do we want to go next? I was thinking we talked a little bit about food. So how about um, some Nutra genomics? Do you, because um, you deal with that too, you work with the, uh, that as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so nutrigenomics, just to give your listeners definition, um, is how food changes your gene expression. And that's in contrast to the subtle difference between that and nutrigenetics, okay. um, which is uh, really looking more, uh, less at the gene expression change and more at just Ooh. looking for your genes to say like, um, so let's look, use MTHFR as an example again. Um, say you've got the the MTHFR variants that need more folate. Well, eating more folate is the nutrigenetics. And then seeing the genetic expression changes that say lower homocysteine is nutrigenomics. So they're okay, intertwined, cool. yeah. um, but it's a little bit of a distinction uh, I like that. that I think is helpful. It is very helpful. Cool. Thank you for, um, for fleshing that out for us. So um, you, in some of the um, literature that I was reading that you've published and, and some of the things about your background, 
you, um, and I feel like we touched about this already, but why some people thrive on different diets. So like, there's obviously no one size fits all. That is one of the baseline tenets that I operate off of. And I try to sort of deprogram people to that, you know, people ask me, oh, well, should I do keto? Uh, ah. <laughs> That's a very specific question. And, you know, so, um, yeah, so tell us why you also, if we have it, I don't know, do you feel like we've covered this already? Like why? No, no, let's go into it. Let's go <laughs> okay. into it. Because uh, I, I think it's, a, it's another way, it's another layer to add. Yeah, okay, um, cool. <laughs> you know, I, I look at different diets like that. I, I now really just look at them as different tools in your toolbox. And if you're thinking about, you know, you've got a hammer and you've got a screwdriver and you've got a saw, um, well, none of those things are right or wrong. You know, none of those things are the right thing or the wrong thing. They're just different tools for different jobs. Mm -hmm. And I look at different nutritional styles. I don't like to call them diets because, um, you know, you can use something short term and, and that's a diet. But really what I'm interested in is nutritional styles that are sustainable, that just really match up with thriving long term. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I see those things as, um, I would say, appropriate for different people in different contexts. And, and like you were saying before about how most of the nutritional based on these averages, right? They're based on this idea that we can kind of get the, the general human diet kind of right. But, you know, for people with different nutritional needs, a particular style might be much better. And again, this comes down to um, the way that some genes are wired to respond. And it's a lot to do with things that were evolutionary advantages at one time were conserved, passed on, and um, trying to really match up with that environment again through diet uh, is really helpful. And it's not one size fits all. So I'll give you an example. Um, it, another pretty well-known gene is the APOE gene. Uh, APOE. And this influences a fat transporter in the body. And this is a gene that certain variants are highly associated with greater risk for cognitive decline and cardiovascular issues. And people that carry these variants, what they found is not all those people get cardiovascular disease. Not all those people get cognitive decline. The mediating factor is really how much saturated fat they're getting in their diet and also exercise is a big piece. And it seems that when people can uh, manipulate their saturated fat intake in a way that promotes the proper expression of that gene, uh, they normalize and minimize their risk factors for those things pretty close to someone else that has the quote unquote better version of that gene. So it's really about kind of matching up with the environment uh, that, you know, the, the yeah. gene uses to function optimally. And, you know, when, when I do an analysis with, with, analysis with people, I'm going to look at about 50 or 60 different genes that are related to different facets of nutrition alone, because it's not just about APOE. It's actually, you know, there's, there's at least seven or eight other variants that can really create a negative response to saturated fat as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, examples like TNF, 
uh, tumor necrosis factor, which is an inflammatory signaling mo uh, molecule, um, there's people that have certain variants of that, that when they eat a diet that's high in saturated fat, uh, they have much higher levels of inflammation, increases you know, risk for autoimmune conditions and things like that. Um, and so, you know, say someone wants to do the keto diet, and this is often something I, I, I you know, work with my clients on, they want to do keto, well, we're going to screen very specifically for things that are going to create a negative response for saturated fat. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll have clients that, um, you know, are clear, good to go. And they do pretty well on keto most of the time. Uh, but looking at that ahead of time before yeah. you do damage is a really good idea. And sometimes I'll have clients and I was thinking of one client in particular who um, was starting to do a keto diet and was like, wait, I should, I know David kind of looks at this stuff. I should probably talk to him. <laughs> and so we, we did her genes and sure enough, she did have some pretty significant issues with high saturated fat. Um, and so we just switched her to a keto approach that was uh, really based on monounsaturated fat, kind of this like hybrid keto yeah. Mediterranean thing. And she did great on it. It was like the perfect thing, but you, you, she would have never have known if she wasn't able to really kind of look and see, um, you know, what her epigenetic response to saturated fats would be like. So, um, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't, yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I and I don't want to get reductionistic and say it's just about saturated fat. It, it's, no, no, you, know, no. you can apply the same lens to, to, uh, many different nutrients, many different macronutrients and look at, um, you know, again, these kind of what they call polygenic scores for those different areas where you're looking at, you know, how multiple genes interact together. Um, yeah. Because I, 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 that's really where genetic variants give you power is when you're looking at how multiple ones are stacked up together. There's only, there's really limited kind of utility when you're just looking at one, like we were mentioning, like if you just look at MTHFR and you don't look at DHFR and you don't look at the folate transporter and you don't look at other aspects of that, you're going to miss other pictures, you miss, miss the bigger picture. So um, I just kind of want to reiterate that it, it's very much about this systems thinking approach and really thinking about, um, you know, how, multiple nodes in this network respond to different inputs. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we, I, yeah, I definitely don't want our listeners to ever think that it's only or always about just one thing that we might talk about this one aspect, but that it will, um, it's, you know, one piece of the larger puzzle for sure. Um, but two, I just wanted to go back and when we're talking about the, you know, the, how you augmented that keto approach to include something that was more Mediterranean when it came to the protein and fat aspect. Um, and I think that's really important too. And I think a lot of times people forget that because it's presented in such a way by a lot of people out there, I don't, you know, I maybe just saying the media in general, but I think when people learn about these things, keto, paleo, they're presented in a definitely like a almost like protocolized fashion, which is easy for people to absorb and, and digest. Ha ha ha. No pun intended. <laughs> but, <laughs> but really, you know, when we're working with clients, I think a lot of what we do is ask questions. What have you tried before? What's worked for you? What hasn't worked for you? When you tried this, how did you feel? So just like the client that you said started down the like 
probably classic keto path, let's call it. And, you know, something in them said, Oh, wait, I'm going to, I'm going to check with David, but maybe also too, they they started feeling not the best or just different. You know, they started noticing changes within themselves. And I think that's important for us to like, really, and something I do, I'm sure you do too, is encouraging our clients to really tune in with their own physical body. And when they do make changes, what are the changes that they notice? Is it good, better, worse, different, and they're not able to place, you know, um, a good, bad to it? And just taking note, and then even without the specific genetic test, we can still use that as augmentation and say, okay, well, maybe this isn't the path for you, and, and you can cut it off at the path just with using the, um, the intuition and the and the tune in, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. The, the intuitive eating part is so key and just developing that body awareness uh, and really being able to tune in, like you said, and, and connect with what's happening, I think is more important than genes, more important than lab tests. I would put that at the top of the list, um, really in terms of developing a sustainable way of a healthy lifestyle. Um, and I think that that um, the, the greater your ability to monitor and be aware of what's happening in your body, um, you know, the greater ability to continue to refine and, and tweak things in a way that that's going to create good outcomes that you want. And sometimes having the data is really helpful. Yeah. You know, having the data is like a, a clue to point you in the direction of what you should be paying attention to. Um, like, I'll give you an example for me. Um, when I first did my genetics, um, I found out that I had a variant in the BDNF gene, uh, which is this important uh, nerve growth factor that's, um, you know, again, kind of one of those things that influences all different things. But I have a variant of it that causes me to um, be more likely to produce low levels of it. And uh, omega-6 fats uh, actually can kind of can make that worse mm -hmm. and it can also cause weight gain in, in some people yeah. and um, inflammation. And um, I had never thought to pay attention to that, but I realized that on days where I just went overboard with them, like I ate way too many nuts and I had oils that weren't quite the right oils that were high omega six, mm -hmm. I would wake up the next day and I could like feel the inflammation in my face. I could feel the puffiness yeah. and I could like notice a little bit more brain fog. And so having that bit of data kind of fueled my intuition, gave it a plant, planted a seed that I could continue to monitor and, and grow. And, and so I think there's this really beautiful interplay between this quantitative data and then the qualitative self-awareness that just gets stronger and stronger um, kind of the more you, you dive into it. Yes, yes, I love that because yes, awareness is so much of the picture. Awareness, whether we're doing mindfulness work, whether we're doing any habit we want to change, the first step is awareness, right? And so, um, yes, we can use these quantitative things to help our awareness. And then the next time when we're presented with this food choice, we could say, hmm you know, I, no matter how much I might want this thing over here, I know my body is going to like me more. <laughs> I'm going to feel better if I make this choice over here. And so, yeah, I definitely felt help, think it helps support our decision-making 
and um, and just feel more secure in that as um, as a patient, as a person that is going through changes. I mean, we're all, right, we're all changing all the time. And so, uh, yeah, and just hopefully like getting better and better uh, by one little step every day. Absolutely. And, and just to kind of uh, jump in there with, with a little bit more on that in terms of habit change and, and that type of self-awareness and like wanting this outcome, but then being presented with this situation where you have the choice to do like one thing or the other, and mm-hmm. you're used to doing this one thing, but you kind of know you don't want to be doing that thing. Um, you know, there's, there's the emotional and mental aspect of it that it has this bi-directional causal loop with all of the neurochemistry and all of these pathways in the brain, uh, dopamine pathways in particular that reinforce that behavior and um, have an epigenetic component in terms of, um, you know, if you've cut a groove in the record, you're probably going to want to follow that. Mm-hmm. And when you start to consciously change the way that you behave you you change the epigenetics you change the the way the neurons are wired together and having an understanding of your genetics interestingly enough can sometimes help um you know help you understand why you might have difficulty with habit change and look at things like dopamine receptor genes and other things that influence like um the uh, production of dopamine in the brain, genes like COMT, things like that, mm-hmm. um, to where getting an understanding of what the neurochemical correlates of those behavioral processes are can really help you modify behavior, create more empathy for your own biochemistry. Um, I, I like to use the term bioempathy to like really you know, hammer that home that um, the more we can come to uh, a sensitive and empathetic understanding of like what's happening in our body, the greater ability we have from a like top down um, executive network control frontal brain, I'm making this decision (laughs) Mm -hmm. kind of perspective, the more we have empathy for the parts of our brain that are unconscious and are just going to want to follow the script uh, without our input, the more we can like really say, Hey, you know, I understand you're there. You're serving a purpose. Um, and I'm wired in this certain way. I know I have the ability to rewire that with these decisions and kind of approach it simultaneously from this top down and bottom up approach. It really gives us more freedom and ability to make the changes we want transform into the people we want to be and um you know not be so stuck in in the same patterns yeah absolutely and i think uh that specific that i think that really comes into play um especially when we're talking about recovery recovery mm-hmm. from substance abuse but also with food you know uh, a lot of us have unhealthy relationships with food as well and so that everything you just described i think if we could you know, really like infuse that into our recovery pathway, it would help us and make it so much more, not only easier, but so much more, uh, such a rich experience. Like it doesn't have to be so hard and painful. It can actually be a journey of discovery and a journey of compassion and self-love, which a lot of us have lost or been trained out of over the years. So yeah, I love that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
Awesome. Well, I think that brings us to sort of a natural close. Um, thank you so much for being here. It was a great conversation. I'm looking forward to having more with you for sure. Um, so I definitely want to have you back to talk about the endocannabinoid system. And yeah, what can we Yeah, absolutely. That? Actually, that last little bit was a, it would be a great lead into that in yeah. terms of, uh, you know, addictive patterns that can show up and, and uh, drugs that can simultaneously trigger those pathways, but also can be profoundly healing as well when used yeah. in certain contexts. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to dive into that with you. Um, in a future episode. Cool. Okay. So just to uh, wrap things up, is there anything specifically that you would like this audience to um, take away from today? Is there like a summation or something specifically you would like them to, I don't know, like sort of ponder and think about for the next couple of days? You know, I would say, you know, what you said, um, your energy follows your attention kind of got me thinking. And I would just encourage anyone who's listening to this to be curious about what happens when you start putting your attention in places that are different than you've been putting it before and see what happens. And, and that can be through, you know, testing and looking at genetics and, and starting to notice, oh, you know, I know I have this genetic tendency. What happens when I put my attention there and notice if I do something differently? Or it can just be, be you know, be more aware of emotions uh, while you're going to your fridge and pulling out, you know, whatever it is you're going to eat. Uh, or it can be curiosity about a new topic or, or something where you haven't put, put your attention there yet and just, you know, see where it leads you. Because um, I feel like just the... Um, the embodiment of curiosity yeah. is really what drives this for me. And I hope that I can um, kind of spread a little bit of that wherever yeah. I go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, curiosity. And also with that sort of like the willingness to be open to something different and just yeah. see what shows up. Yeah, awesome. So where can um, our audience find you on social media or where? Mm -hmm. So I'm on Instagram at Whole Systems Health. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, David Krantz, Epigenetic Coach. And my website is david-krantz, K-R-A-N-T-Z.com. And I've got some articles on there. I've got info about my coaching work. And if anyone is listening and you're interested and you, you know, something in this conversation has sparked your interest, uh, I offer free 30-minute consultations uh, just to get a feel for if we'd be a good fit to work together. So you can go and um, either send me a message or book a call directly on my calendar on my site. Um, but yeah, that's where people can find me. Awesome. Cool. Okay. Well, we look forward to having you back. We meaning me <laughs> and the light body tribe. And so, um, yeah, I think we'll uh, tie it up here and say thank you. And we will catch you on the flip side.